Hello. Hey, John. Hey, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was just walking down the hall, and somebody was also walking down the hall, and I uh, wanted to nod at them, and they never looked at me. Oh. So that was one of those things where I was like, hmm. Are people in Seattle, like, are they friendly? Like, you're walking down the street, and a nice area in midday and like, are people smiling and they looking around, they smiling or are they sort of huddling and trying to get away from you? It's really hard to make a, you know, like when you're in the South, everybody's very friendly on the street. Right. It's hard to make a generalization about Seattle in that way because, um, because it's unclear how friendly are, but uh, how friendly people are. But you know, yeah, there's a certain amount of social grace where you're, you look at one another kind of out of the side, you know, side look to see what, <laughs> what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody nods at you in a friendly way, you, you kind of are surprised and you're pleased and you go, oh, hello. And, you know, there's, a, there's enough of that that it's not crazy to think of, of that as being the way we are. But particularly if you are alone in a hallway in a building with somebody, sure, you want to think that they are going to at least acknowledge that you know that you're not passing each other like this is the thing i mean if he had looked at me mm-hmm. he he walked past me looking looking purposefully away from me as though if he looked at me i would turn into cthulhu and <laughs> grab him with my tentacles and throw him into an eternity of torment and it's just like come on guy it's just <laughs> we're just walking just, down the it's hall just a nod for crying out loud yeah. at least you know like hey what's up or just hey I am a human. You are a human. Yeah. But other than that, and that's very small potatoes. That did not, that is not affecting me really. Just affecting me a little bit. Other than that, like a five percentile, not even that I'd say a point, a point Oh five. Oh, but it's just a, it's a little, you know, it's just a little grain of sand. Right. In, uh, in my, uh, oyster meat. Right. That maybe it'll turn into a pearl. Maybe it'll just be, maybe it'll, you know, maybe I'll spit it out. Who knows with me? A, a pebble under the tread of the machine that is your life. A pea under 15 blankets. <laughs> um, 15 mattresses. Yeah. Yeah. So are you back? You're back from overseas. Uh, that's right. Technically, I was overseas in that I had to go over a sea. Mm-hmm. Actually, over an an ocean or a part of an ocean. Yeah. People are always hammering me about a sea versus an ocean. They, well, they're very, there seem to be very strong opinions about the difference between a sea and an ocean. Although we do say overseas, but I guess that's like multiple seas. But it's, it feels like I all, I all the time refer to Puget Sound here as the ocean. Yeah. Like, oh, it's over there by the ocean. And people are like, that's not an ocean. And I'm like, it's connected to the ocean. It's ocean water. Yeah. But they're like, no, it's a sea. It's an inland sea. All right. I yeah. looked this up. The National right. Ocean Service, NOAA, National yeah. Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Right. Says seas are smaller than oceans and are usually located where the land and ocean meet. Typically, seas are partially enclosed by land. So examples would be the Bering Sea. Right. And Puget Sound is, it's right there in the name. It's a sound. <laughs> now, what's, a, what's the difference between a sound and a sea? Sound versus sea. Sound versus sea. <laughs> I mean, that's not, not evident. 
Uh-huh. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up a little Sound more. Sound versus C. Come on. Come on, Wikipedia. Difference what, between. What good are you? Sound versus C. I feel like a sound, sound is a small okay, sound. C, a big C. In geography, a sound is a large sea or ocean inlet, uh, larger than a bay, deeper than a bite, oh. B-I-G-H-T, <laughs> wider than a fjord, or a narrow sea or ocean channel between two bodies of land, see also straight. Right. I would have no. I, I knew it's wider than a fjord. I didn't I mean, know duh, it was deeper than a bite. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Deeper than a bite. Uh, so it's a large C is a sound. Yeah. And then I think that that's, I think Puget Sound is a large C. Mm-hmm. Did you know that Seattle is one of uh, a very, very few cities built on an isthmus? <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, there are only only uh, only a small number of isthmus cities, and Seattle is one of them. A narrow um, strip of land with C on either side, forming a mm-hmm. link between two larger areas of land. Right. And in our case, one of the seas is the very large Lake Washington. Not as large as Lake Michigan, but large enough that, that, uh, that the strip of land where Seattle is located is, qualifies as an isthmus, which is a great word, isthmus. Yeah. This anyway, that's all. Is- isthmus. There's the isthmus of Catalina Island. Fidalgo Island. Right. There's a Madison Isthmus, Seattle, Washington, and Point sure. Peninsula, New York. I feel like Madison is the only other true Isthmus cities because those ones which are con- which are on islands but are connected by Isthmi <laughs> are uh, you know those are island cities. Those are cities on a on an on an island where it just happens to be connected by an isthmus, whereas Madison and Seattle both have their the city itself is on the isthmus. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah, that's the fascinating geographical truth. See, when I grew up in Philadelphia, we would go to what was called the shore, right? Which meant New Jersey, right? But it was the shore; it yeah. was the ocean. Yeah. But if you lived in, if you lived on hmm, Chesapeake Bay, yeah, you would be on a on a bay. But wouldn't you call it the ocean? It's, I mean, I think that water is a lot of. So there's a lot of fresh water in there too, but it's still salty sea water. It's very confusing, and I I think if you went to the shore, yeah, in Maryland or Virginia, and you were on Chesapeake Bay, you'd still. You'd still call it the ocean. Okay, quiz question for you. Is the Gulf of Mexico an ocean or a sea? I believe that you would probably call it a sea, right? I think you're, see, I, that was my answer. The Sea of Cortez. The Sea of Cortez. But it's described on Wikipedia as an ocean basin. <laughs> okay, all right. But, you know, is the... But I the, the like, ocean basin is filled with seawater. Well, and the Sea of Cortez... <laughs> Is bigger than Puget Sound, yeah. or, or is it? Um, but I feel like if Puget Sound is a sound, and a sound is bigger than a sea, then why isn't the Sea of Cortez also oh, yeah. a sound? It, it should, should be, be the sound of Cortez. And I guess okay. the Lake Lake Michigan, for example, is only a lake because it doesn't. It is surrounded by land, therefore it's a lake, even though it's as big as many oceans and, or seas. Well, sure. Also, it's fresh water. Fresh water. But I thought 
is is that a requirement for the ocean that it must be filled with with salt water? Is that a requirement? I think, I think absolutely that okay. is a requirement. I, th- I think if you're going to call something an ocean, it has better be I salt. Think th- I think that's the confusion, right? Because Puget Sound is full of ocean water, of course. But I don't think Lake Michigan. Is, no, saline. It it actually says here an ocean is a body of saline water. I was watching this morning. I went to the dentist's office, and they had this is a new dentist here. That for me, they're not new. They're new yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, right. And they had flat screen TVs on the ceiling of the dentist's office. Of the so dentist's you, office. So when you you're look in at the, them. <laughs> when you're in the chair getting your work done, you can look up, and they have uh, they've got a a computer screen. It's connected to a computer, and I'm I. I assume it's the computer that they also have your dental images on because I would occasionally see the mouse cursor slide over onto the screen and then back again uh-huh. while they were clicking through my x-rays. Uh-huh. And in a browser they had, I think it was Netflix running in a browser in Chrome. And they said, Any, anything up there you want to watch while we do this? And I, I had them put on because I was thinking of you and sort of prepping for the show. You had to put on uh, behind the green door. Uh, no, <laughs> there was something that had to do with uh, polar bears and other things that lived in in both the North and the South Pole. Yeah, and well, that, uh, that wouldn't be polar bears. Well, they their polar bears came later, but they had wolves and they had other things that were living in bison that live up far in the north somewhere. And you know, they, I wasn't listening to it; I was just watching it. So I just it was cold. Cold climates, animals foraging, the endless cold that never eases and the struggle for life. And it, Mm, the struggle for life, definitely a thing you want to be thinking about as you are being worked on in a dentist. Yeah. The struggle for life. There were penguins, you know, it was very, very dramatic and beautiful to watch while you're getting your teeth cleaned. Well, I think that's, that's quite an innovation and I support that. Mm -hmm. That seems like a, that seems like a proper use of technology to give, people in the dentist chair something to look at did do they give you nitrous oxide no no i wasn't having anything like that done it's just a just a routine oh, routine cleaning if you had nitrous oxide i think that they would probably that. they would offer you like some pink floyd videos <laughs> and you would forget all about it <laughs> the last time that i had nitrous oxide was in the dentist chair and i was listening to phil collins Whoa. Which seemed appropriate. <laughs> Did you tell me, Dan, you were in high school somewhat of a recreational drug user or not? That's a good question. Uh, you know, no, I really, I feel like I missed out because back in those days, I feel like the quality of the uh, of the pot, I would still call it pot, which shows you how hip I am. I understand it's called weed now. Uh-huh. It was called weed then too, well, but also pot. Pot, the pot, the pot weed was was good. I did I did try pot in college, but that's the hardest drug that I a recreational drug that I ever tried. But uh, but nitrous oxide as a uh, as a like in the dentist chair is the only place I ever got that. Not as a recreation. Never had a whip it. I see. I see. I should have uh, let loose more back then. You know, I think it would have done me done me some good. I feel like the whippets. We always felt were a a pretty mild, like low level introduction drug that yeah. didn't 
qualify really as a as a real drug <laughs> and you could do whippets and maintain your sort of drug virginity <laughs> um but you know whippets in conjunction with alcohol create a state of intoxication i would i would say i would say greater mm. than many i mean it's it's very brief so you don't think of it as like oh no i'm going on a whippet trip i'm going to be gone <laughs> i'm going to lose my mind you know but but uh a combination of whippets and marijuana uh-huh. or as you would call it pot yeah um i I entered a uh, a completely transcendent state, not unpleasant, but extremely intense. And um and it kind of gave me it gave me some insight into nirvana even. Um but not really in a, you know, I can't say like oh, that's what I hope it is. Yeah. But but like when you when you break it all the way down, you break it all the way down. Yeah, you're gonna get something uh, akin to this this marijuana whippet combo, which uh, which is difficult to describe, but is basically oscillating black and white uh, paddles in a sort of fast black white black white black white kind of wah, 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 with, with including that sound. Include <laughs> though the sound went with it. Sound went with it. And you are, you are utterly gone. Like you would not, you are not capable of anything for that. However long, let's call it 30 seconds to a minute. You're just completely in wah, 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 land with your vision obscured by black and white flashing paddles. Wow. And that seemed to me to be indicative of some larger truth. I may be and <laughs> am probably wrong. Yeah. That it's not indicative of anything other than that you are really shutting some shit down. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> it's like a near death, a near death experience almost. Yeah. Some heavy action where you're like, oh, your body's like, well, <laughs> let's just. Let's just, you know, get down to brass tacks. Everything is nothing and wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time it felt it, it. And I think even still, it feels very like, whoa, like I'm, I am giddy. And now the giddiness is ramping up and then off to, to something like something profound. But that's the that's the whippet story. I mean, I remember uh, being at parties when I was about fifteen, and this is before I drank or ever smoked pot. When whippets were being consumed, and people were—I mean, they're fifteen-year-olds, right? So they don't know anything. But people were behaving very strangely. I was offended. I was a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a judgy little teen, mm. and I was like, "This is gross." <laughs> But then, you know, I got in, I got into the whippet trade and, uh, was that, yeah. I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to teach, this is not a show to teach kids about how to make drugs. No. Do you feel like there are a lot of kids? Uh, I feel like there's a lot stuff? of, a lot of kids, young people yeah. who are listening to this stuff. I do. But like, didn't it involve the ready whip canister? So Isn't, that's, 
That's one way. And I think the first whippets I ever did, I had a friend that worked at a cold storage warehouse. <laughs> and he was like, we were driving around town. And he was like, let's go over to the cold storage warehouse. And I was like, what for? And he's like, I'll show you. I'll tell you when we get there. We got there and it was like big pallets of of creamer and pallets of butter. And, you know, it was a big distribution center where he worked as a pallet schlepper. But it was kind of a small company, enough small enough that he, at 16 or 17 years old, was pretty familiar with all, you know, the boss was chummy with him. He was right. a well-liked guy. And we went out into the warehouse where there was a pallet of whipped cream. And he was like, check it out. Pull the whipped cream can out. And, mm-hmm. you know, facing straight up, uh, blew all the gas into his mouth without really getting any cream. Just the last little bit of cream right. you get when you have exhausted all the gas. And he was like, try it. And I knew that it was a whippet. But the fact that it came in a, you know, whipped cream can, you know, that very much contributes to the sense that it is just a, that it's a tame. Yeah. It's a toy. Uh, tame drug. Yeah. And so I did this whippet and I was like, wow, holy cats yeah i'm i feel really amazing and so we sat there and did whatever half a dozen of these things and every one of them he put back in the pallet oh like those were going to go out to stores people (laughs) were going to buy those oh my god and they and they would be they would not function um which i didn't think about at the time right later on when i was in my actual when i was actually when i had become a druggie A friend of mine and I would go into grocery stores and just do whippets right out of the cold case. Mm. Just just take all the gas, stick them right back in, and on your merry way. Uh, that's terrible. That effectively is shoplifting, right? But you know, you're a druggie, so I mean, what do you define as a as a druggie? Like, what is that? And because I I I'm thinking back to high school, and I definitely knew kids that I would have said, "Oh, he was he's a druggie." Yeah. And I don't know, is that term even used? Like, is that still a term that people use? Probably not. Yeah. Although, I don't know, I haven't been in high school in a long time. Maybe they still say druggie. But, you know, I was not a druggie in high school. It was later in college and post-college when I started to qualify as a druggie. Yeah. Although, I don't think anybody would have pointed at me and said druggie because I didn't have a lot of the other signs and signals of being a druggie. But I was one. And that is someone who is interested primarily in taking drugs. Uh, taking drugs is the uh, any other leisure activity that a person does. Go to a sports game, go to a rock concert, watch TV, read a magazine, go out into a park during the day. All of those things are uh, are excuses to do some kind of drug or are enhanced by doing some kind of drug. You know, there was no, there was a point in my life where there was no activity I would go do that didn't have some kind of like, let's go smoke pot and walk around a fun forest or let's go to this place because I know there are some drugs there and we will have this, this time. It's not like you would just go hike in the mountains. You would go hike in the mountains to smoke some pot. Or, mm-hmm. Like that was the, that was the ultimatum. That was the goal. It was the, it was the, it was the life enhancer. Right. And without it, the activity would just seem like dull or, or 
that it would be a prelude to when you got back to normal reality and could get some drugs. So that's, I think, what, what I would describe as a druggie. I, was lo- I looked this up, and I found a couple different definitions. Oh, there are, drug- there are definitions of druggie. Yeah. The um, internet is so wonderful. The Merriam-Webster Dictionaries is somewhat boring. A person who habitually uses drugs. Urban Dictionary goes a little further. Of course. A person who uses illegal drugs daily, and they can, that can range from marijuana users to heroin users. Most druggies have two states of being, on drugs— or withdrawing from drugs. They are, are also usually out of touch with everybody or they do not enjoy being with non-drug users. That's, that's certainly true. So that was an element that I thought drug, uh, Urban Dictionary brought to the term drug. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know about uh, withdrawing from drugs as being the only other state. I think that it's better described as either on drugs or seeking drugs. Mm. So there were a lot of times when I wouldn't say that I was withdrawing from drugs, but I was certainly like, when am I going to get some drugs? Where are the drugs? Come on. I don't have any drugs right now, and I'm not around anybody that has any drugs, and this is not, this is not my preferred situation. I would yeah. like to be near, nearer to doing drugs. And then, you know, there's the state where you're not actually on drugs, but you are anticipating being on drugs. Like you're with somebody that has drugs and you're just waiting for them to offer them or you've procured some drugs, but you can't use them yet. Like that's a nice place to be. It's a little bit anxious. You're a little bit like it's, it's the nice anticipation, but I think you're right. The key is if they are not really hanging out with people that aren't doing drugs. Right. And that was, that was true for me. And that was, that was, I guess, the thing that made it the biggest bummer. Because that restricts, that restricts your company pretty dramatically. Was it because you felt like people who were not on drugs or like druggy culture or whatever, like they were just, were they not cool? Did they not get you? Is it that you had to sort of shield that part of your life from them in a way? <clears throat> Well, it was like, what are we get here? Like, we're not are we a, even going to talk about, right? Yeah. We're, well, no. I mean, I was always capable of talking to uh, everybody, but it was like, what are we? What activity are we going to engage in? What are we going to do? We're going to go to the library. Are we going to go roller skating? Like, what? What the? I don't want to hang out with people that aren't pursuing drugs because, because what are we going to do? We're going to be bored. Because the only thing that was that seemed exciting to me was chasing drugs, doing drugs, and then being on drugs and repeat, then start chasing them again and then take them and be on them. I was never somebody that had a ready supply of drugs because I didn't have any money. Mm. And so all those people that like had a big shoe box in their house that was just full of drugs <laughs> And they replenished the supply of drugs long before they ran out. So it was like, oh, they would buy a quarter of pot. They would have a bunch of cocaine or LSD or whatever they wanted. They had a bunch of it. And so so they would just kind of hang out and never run out of drugs. And, and seriously, 50% of my time... 50% of my daily awake time was spent 
finding drugs. See, which, <laughs> when you don't have any money, means finding someone with drugs and then convincing them to share those drugs with you. That's a, well, that was probably 75% of my day. Wow. Because, you know, there are a lot of people with drugs, but, but the ones that want to share those drugs with you, that's a smaller subset. This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. But don't take it from me. Go and check them out. Go to squarespace.com slash roadwork and use the code roadwork and you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. But when you're there, take a look at the templates. Take a look at how amazing these sites that you can build with Squarespace look. If you're a musician, you want to upload your album. If you're a podcaster, you want to host your show. If you're trying to sell something, they've got e-commerce. Or if you just want to make an amazing site for your product or your restaurant, or you want to write a blog and you want drag and drop to embed all the cool videos and audio that you got. It, you can do it all starting at just eight bucks a month. Go check it out. Squarespace.com slash roadwork and the code roadwork gets you 10% off your first purchase. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm thinking about the movie drugstore cowboy a little bit, mm-hmm. which was a, I think a good movie. Those guys didn't have any money either. Right. I'm thinking of guys that they didn't have any money. They spent most of their time figuring out how to get drugs or being on the drugs. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit on this show, not much, but you've talked a little bit about how you changed your life and you went from being a druggie to like not, not drinking at all to being yeah. sober. Yeah. And periodically on this show, we will take listener questions, mm-hmm. but I would say that I think the most asked listener question has actually been john will you tell i know you don't read these will will you tell the story of how you made that decision or why you made the decision and 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 how you did it and i think there's a lot of people who are curious including me about how and why you did that is that something you are comfortable talking about Sure, I think it, I think by what I just described, it should be kind of, it should start to be apparent that I was conscious of being. I was I was very conscious of the fact not that I not just that I was on drugs and high uh, as much time as I could be, uh, and that I was that I was increasingly disagreeable when I was high, and not not high on pot because that was just like whatever but that certainly on on alcohol and on cocaine or or crank i mean yeah, i was just it was not i was not a, i was not a pleasure it wasn't really i wasn't a pleasure you, to myself. i would think a lot of people who are on the on on drugs don't really know that they're not like you know what I mean? Like there's something, there was something different about you that made you say, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to change like my whole game up. Well, that a lot of people never seem to get that or do that. I think, I think the, I think the awareness that once you are, once you're a druggie, once you're on drugs, you're never going to achieve the great high or the great drunk or the great feeling 
that that got you into those things in the first place. You're never going to experience that again, right? You're never going to be high enough that you laugh all afternoon at ridiculous dumb things Mm -hmm. after you've been smoking pot for 10 years, right? right? You're just smoking pot to maintain a comfortable feeling of being stoned. And when you don't have pot, you're filled with anxiety. Um, that is not the same as when you were initially smoking pot and you were like, Oh my God, did you see that guy? He was eating an orange. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like that was right. When you first take, I mean, LSD being slightly different that you can continue to have pretty profound experiences for a while. Um, but everything wears off. Alcohol certainly is, you're not like, you're not whooping it up like you once did. You get, you start to get just sort of angry and unpleasant. Um, you feel, you know, you feel mellow or you feel loosened up, but it's not really this. It's not the same jam. And so particularly if you're abusing those things, if you're, if you're really seeking the thing, uh, if you're, if you're not aware of the fact that, it's never going to get any better. You're never going to get back to anything. Um, all it takes is for you to have that thought one time or for somebody to suggest that thought one time. And then it's, you know, you can't get it out of your head. It's not right. like, it's not like you can look at it and say, be like, no, 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 I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to, if I keep drinking a bottle of gin every day, one of these days, I'm going to feel like a young person again. There was that, but then also I think most people find a way to make sure that they have a quarter of weed in a shoebox somewhere because as you get older and you maintain a job, you devote a certain amount of resources to maintain your habit. And, and I had the, you know, I'm plagued by that thing, which is all I want is to, uh, the, the greatest commodity in my life is always leisure. And so when I took drugs, I didn't want to work and I wasn't really capable of working. And so I didn't work and then I was poor and then I had nowhere to live. And, and everyone knew that when I came around, I was going to be like, Hey, where you going to smoke all of that? Or I'd be like, Hey, you know, I'd grab a pint glass at the bar and walk over and sit around a table where there were a bunch of pitchers until someone poured it for you until somebody poured it for you or until there were enough people sitting around this big table that the pitchers of beer lost clear ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, early on in the night, guy buys a pitcher of beer. He sits it down in front of him. He'll pour other people beers, but he clearly owns the pitcher. Right. Right. But as the, and so if you sit down next to him with your pint glass and he doesn't like you, or he feels like you're a moocher, he can not, he can choose not to pour it. Sure. And, you can put on as big a show as you want for him, but if he's not charmed, then you're shit out of luck. Yeah. And you know, and so I would spend the first hour or two sitting in the bar in front of an empty pint glass. And I knew that I was just, I was just biding my time and everybody around me knew it. But then at a certain point in the evening, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, there are enough people at the table. People have come and gone and there are enough pitchers arriving, three pitchers on the table, four pitchers on the table that nobody's thinking of the beer that way anymore. And then, you know, and usually I would, 
you know, somebody be pouring a beer and I would hold out my glass and be like, Hey, Hey, uh, you want to uh, get me? And they just sort of, they're a little drunk now and they would move the pitcher over and fill up my beer. And then once I had a beer, Oh yeah. Oh man. Then, you know, then I was grandfathered in, right? I would, I'd have a beer. So 60% of the people would presume that I had bought that beer or that I had brought a pitcher myself to the table. And then you're just in, then you're in the mix. And there were always enough people that found me charming or, you know, thought I was wonderful or knew that I was, that I didn't have any money, but that I was going to be there all night, that they just didn't stand on ceremony. And I would sit down at the table and they would immediately pour me a beer because that was the, you know, that was what they figured was the price. Um, or they liked me, you know, but this was sort of, uh, this was the, this is the style of being a tavern alcoholic which is different than being a bar alcoholic. You know, if you're sitting at a bar and waiting for somebody to buy you, to sport you a $6 whiskey and soda, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a different game. That's a different level of sorry. And I think most people that sit at a bar have to have some cash or they get ejected. You know, you can't sit there and mooch gin and tonics off of people in front of a bartender. Right for a long time before the bartender's like, Hey, you got to get out of here. But in a tavern, when you're kind of sitting, you're just, and you know, listen, Dan, I used to give a good show. I would do, I would, you know, I would balance fucking shit on my head. I would tell jokes. I would sing songs. I was fun. Yeah, no, I, I have no doubt about that. And so, you know, you just, it's a, you're, you're a tavern drunk. And then as you get more and more, you get more and more well-known and people realize that you're also game. You're good to go. You're good to take this party on the road. You're good to take it up a notch. Then you get into that category where, you know, there are people that have cocaine or they have crank or they have ecstasy or, or whatever, you know, they have some pills and they're in a different class. The place is full of tavern people. There are, bike messengers there and there are people that work in offices. Most of those people don't want to take some mystery pills. And then the people that have those pills, they want a friend, you know, they're just like everybody else. They want a guy that balances a pitcher of beer on his head. Right. They want to go somewhere with their, with a, with a new friend. And when, you know, when it was evident that I would take some pills, cause those people are sitting at the tavern and they're like, Hey, anybody want to, Anybody want to do a little bit of wing wing? <laughs> right. And most people don't even notice. They don't hear the offer. Right. Or if they do, they just, they just turn away from it. Right. But I was always ready. Like, Oh, what's that? What do you say? What are you, where are you going? You know, guys would be like, uh, we're going to go out back. And it's like, Oh, you're going to go out back. Well, that means you're going to smoke pot. So I would go with them and then you'd be smoking pot and they'd be like, do you ever, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried mixing Percocet with, uh, with Demerol? And it's like, have I? Or if I hadn't, I'd be like, let's try, you know, I'm interested. And then all of a sudden you're off to the races or you're gone. You've gone to a second location with something. And that was when it got really problematic because then you go to a third location with people you met at the second. Location. Oh, right. And then you don't know who you're dealing with. Right, you you met these people at a drug event 
which is usually, you know, a sketchy group of five people sitting in somebody's kitchen or mm-hmm. something. And you meet somebody there and they're like, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go talk to a guy about some things. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I'll go with, I'll go to that. And then, right. You're with this, you're with a different group that you met somewhere. You don't know them. You don't know where you're going. You get into a stranger's car, you drive somewhere far away. And what they don't know about you is that you don't have any money. Right. You, you showed up at the second event as the, as the guest, the gift of this person you met at the bar. But then they're like, let's go to this third location. And then we get there and it's like, Oh shit, I don't have any money. And they're like, you don't have any money. We're at this third location to meet the man. Right. What the fuck are you doing here? And that's when it gets hostile or dangerous or you get left places or you end up, they end up cutting you in on the deal. But, but now you're indebted to them. Uh, Yes. They have supplied some, some third quantity, some higher level uh, of party, but you're not just going to take some and then skate away. You're into them for something. And that's where I started being gone for three days on thing on adventures that I was like, you know, initially out of my depth. And then as I, as, as I was increasingly within my depth there, I started to realize that I was not a druggie anymore, that I was becoming a scumbag. Oh, and that's not druggie is a fine thing to be. If you're, you know, if you're just like, yeah, we went to the guns and roses concert. We're fucked up. (laughs) But like scumbag is somebody that's spending a lot of time in the back of parking garages. You know, like, that's when people are, that's when people say, well, if you want to do, if you know, you're not going to get out of here now. And if you want to keep doing these drugs with us, then you're going to have to do this or that. Mm-hmm. And that's when you end up doing this or that, which is not a good path to be on. And by that, you mean like there's a store, you know, they, they don't lock the back door at night or it's just a, some of that easy some- to get in there. Some of it is like, you know, like I'm an, I'm a junkie and I don't want to be alone. Yeah. And now you're with me and we're going to go dope up and, you know, and you're going to keep me from stopping breathing or oh, what do you, you know? Like there's, right, a, right, right. there's a drug thing and what ends up happening is that all paths lead to a kind of prostitution. If you don't have money and you are trying to get higher and higher and higher, you will find a path to prostitution, which is not to say professional sex work. It is to say that you are on a path where you are selling some aspect of yourself or yourself entirely in order to keep being high. Right. And, you know, I was still at a level at that point in time that I had things to offer beyond just like, okay, I guess you get to fuck me or whatever. Right. Um, but I was running out of those things and, you know, and then, and eventually you get in a room with somebody that's not interested in anything else. So all of that was weighing on me and I was sick all the time. I didn't eat because that, you know, if you're going to ask somebody for something, is it really going to be dinner? Is it, are you going to use up your 
ask on dinner. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I would, there'd be a lot of times when I'd be in a stranger's house and I'd go and then everybody else would be conked out and I'd go search through their cupboards and find a can of ravioli and eat it cold out of the can. I kept myself like, I kept myself fed. But the long-term prospects of all of what I was doing, like, all right, you're already sick. You're, you're sick all the time. You're going to a fourth location now with people that you met at an event where you didn't know anybody already. <laughs> and you're mean. You're getting mean. You're getting sketchy and mean and you're turning into a scumbag. And this little stack of of truths just pointed directly in one direction, right? There was not, this was no longer, I, I was no longer fascinating because anyone who would have found me fascinating was gone from my life. I was now just, you know, it's like Kerouac at a certain point, he still had resources. Kerouac could still drink out on his name and he was still presumably sitting down at a typewriter and writing the gibberish for which he is famous. Mm -hmm. But when Kerouac was drinking himself to death, he went and stayed at Fairland Getty's house in Big Sur. Right. He, he wasn't just like shitting around on the fringes of society. And right. Bukowski always had a job. Bukowski had a job and sat around. He was a tavern drunk for all intents and purposes and started writing his, you know, writing his stuff really early. So he always had a, he always was doing a thing, making art. And when, when you first read Bukowski, you're like, oh my God, the depths of depravity. But he was just, you know, he was selling that. What were the depths of his depravity were, you know, he got in fist fights. He was drunk and shambly and shitty to people. But, you know, he never bent over in a bathroom. Right. So, you know, the writing was on the wall for me. And like, I think you're maybe shortchanging yourself a little bit because I think there's a lot of people who don't either they don't see a way out or they don't see the reason out or they don't make the change. And I think your life probably isn't a completely different place than it would have been if you'd stayed on that path. Right. Like that, and that's true for everybody. But yeah. most of the people that I know that are like 40 years old and still, a, and are an alcoholic and recognize that they are. Yeah. Which is a, which is most alcoholics recognize that they are at a certain point. But what they find difficult is, I mean, they definitely feel like people that don't drink are boring. What are you going to do? Go roller skating. Like everything that's interesting in the world takes place within a context of hard drinking. I mean, the number of people who have said to me, like, all my heroes were drunks. Like, who cares if you die a little bit early? Like, all the good shit was made by people that were high or drunk or both. And then they run down a list of all their heroes. And it's always a list of drunks. It's always the playwrights and the dramatic rock stars and the artists and all the drunks. Right. 
And, and, you know, and there are a lot of famous people in that category. And so they're like, so, you know, this is the, this is the life. This is life to be drunk. And when I try to quit being drunk, all of a sudden I feel this, I can't hang out with my friends anymore. And they're the only cool people I know. So who am I going to hang out with a bunch of roller skaters? No, I'm an artist or I want to be living the life. I want to be in the mix. And that's all happening in the context of this, of real life, which is, you know, which is alcohol and drug fueled energy and excitement. And that's the problem for most alcoholics is they just look at the world and they think everybody drinks like this for the most part, all the good people. And the problem is that they just can't see, uh, yeah, all the people you know drink like that. So, of course, you think it seems oh, normal. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just like people who live in Alabama and shop at Walmart. They're like, who are these West Coast liberals with their gay pride? Like, that's not how people think. That's not how the world is. Right. And they are the freaks because everybody I know, uh, you know, likes, uh, likes the, the, the monster truck rally. And why is that, you know, why would anybody not? So, and I don't mean to disparage people that go to monster truck rallies because I like them too, but it's, it's that, it's that thing from within the culture of drinking. You just cannot imagine, first of all, making the transition. And then on the other side of the transition, what's there? It's just this, you know, you just, you convince yourself that it's just that's on the other side of the transition is just the bland people who work in offices, the gray people who just don't suck the marrow from life. Mm -hmm. But the reality is I absolutely felt that way. And I quit drinking out of necessity. And I spent several months making a transition, which was very hard, which was that most of the people I knew and the whole world in which I was a famous and exciting personality and the whole world in which I was a reviled, uh, scumbag loser, all of that. I couldn't really, I mean, it's true. You lose a lot of friends, but on the other side of that, all of a sudden I was hanging out with people that wrote plays all right, and produced plays and, and actually acted in plays and were part of a theater scene. And then all the musicians that aren't fucked up on drugs, which is most of them. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I knew people who wrote for magazines and I, you know, I was actually in a whole other mix of people who drank and sometimes smoked pot, but it wasn't the center. They weren't. And, and I found it not very difficult to be around people who drank socially because once I said, I don't do it. Right. I had to get away from people that that's all they did. But once I was around people that were like, let's make a, you know, let's go downstairs and, and write a play. It was like, okay. Yeah. And then we'd start writing a play and they'd have a beer. But if it, but if I were drinking it, immediately, it would have become about the beer. Right, we're writing mm-hmm. a play, but that's an excuse to drink twelve beers. But that's not what happened. We were writing a play, and it was an excuse to write a play. There was that was the main activity. Right. So that was the revelation to me that on the other side of this 
fog or the other side of this wall, this walled city that I lived in, which was everybody I knew drank and sucked the marrow out of life. And all the people I admired, like Jimi Hendrix and, and, uh, you know, and the, I mean, I never admired Jack Kerouac, but I had a list of the great writers, all of whom were hard drinkers. And then you get to the other side of that and you're like, Oh, you know what? There's also an equally great list of writers and musicians who did not die of alcohol poisoning. Uh, maybe a bigger, better list. So yeah, that transition is hard. And I, I talk to people all the time. I have a couple of good friends that are going through it now where they're like, you know, I try, I, I didn't drink for four days. And we meet for lunch and I'm like, great. How was it? And they were like, it was amazing. But, you know, but then on the fifth day I wanted to go to a show and I went to the show cause my friends were playing and everybody was drinking and getting high. And I just felt like a boob. And so, you know, I drank. Seems, I mean, it seems like that would be really the hard part is yeah. that it's something that, I mean, if you, you know, that I would think you'd get into the cycle of not just, I mean, not just enjoying and having a good time, but it, anything that you do for a long time definitely does become a habit. And it definitely, if you're now around that and like alcohol is pretty much everywhere, like it's, it's everywhere. And, and one of the things I talk about on like a couple of my other shows is like, you know, the, the cool thing at the startup in San Francisco now is to have like, beer in the fridge you can just right. drink beer right here at work while you're working have a beer like that's so completely normal and it's it's really everywhere you look and it's associated with and that's just alcohol like forget the 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 whole drug scene yeah just alcohol and it it seems like it's you know i remember a friend of mine i i may have told this story to you but he was in uh he went to joined the Navy and he was in boot camp. And the whole time in boot camp, you can't have anything. You can't drink anything. You can't smoke. You can't do anything. Right. And I forget the duration of boot camp, how long that is, but I feel like it was six weeks. Yeah. It was a long time. And w whatever the length of time was, it was more than enough time for him to break any kind of physical dependency he had on uh, cigarettes. And he smoked Marlboro Reds. And he probably was like a pack a day smoker. Sure. And had he had been since he, I knew him in high school, he was, you know, I don't know, 14 is probably when he started. Sure. I was a camel smoker and didn't want to smoke Marlboro's, but you know, smoke them if you got them. Right. But when he, but, he went into, he went into boot camp, he came out of boot camp. And I said, uh, I said, man, you, you know, you basically quit smoking. He's like, yeah, I did. I'm like, well, that's great. Good for you. He's like, well, no, I'm like, we got to stop on the, <laughs> on the way back to the house. I'm like, why? He's like, because I want to pack cigarettes right now. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I thought like you had sort of quit and like, don't you feel better? He's like, yeah, I feel better. But like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop smoking. Right. Duh. Like, and he immediately picked it back up. And, you know, like it, it wasn't his choice to stop smoking. So he, of course, didn't want to stop smoking. He was forced to stop smoking. And, but, you know, these things are all around us. They're so readily available. And I would think that would have that would be the the most challenging part of it. It would be to sit there and be like, "Wow, I used to be the guy who was like the most fun at this thing, 
and 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 surrounded and enjoying and indulging in all of this and now like how do i have fun without it well yeah but that's that is that's absolutely a social that's a social motivator and right. and, and and the the example i guess that i would make is do you 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 like to go to uh to baseball games right oh yeah so when you are sitting at a baseball game, a live baseball experience, and you have, um, let's say, 30,000 people around you all enjoying a baseball time. Right. There are – that's, that's a good time to look at a kind of slice of humanity that's really spread out right in front of you. You know, how often do you see 40,000 people? Right. And that's a statistic that you hear a lot. Like, oh, well, 40,000 people voted for Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. at the Iowa primary. Well, how much, how many people is that? Well, it's one baseball stadium. Right. And so when you're sitting in a baseball stadium, you look at those 40,000 people. If you have always gone to a baseball game as a drinker, and your friends are all drinkers, and you sit together drinking giant cups of beer, with your hats and your gloves and you talk about baseball and you're drinking beer. Right. But it's really a beer excuse. And by the end of the game, you're pie eyed (laughs) and all your friends are. It's easy to look at that 40,000 people in the baseball stadium and imagine that everybody else is doing that. Right. The guys are walking up and down the aisles going beer, beer, beer. And, you think, oh, yeah, this is normal. This is what you do at a baseball game. This is what I've always done at a baseball game. Well, if you go to a baseball game as a sober person, you realize that 80% of the people at the baseball game are not drinking beer at all. Right. 85% of the people. They are the ones buying hot dogs and popcorn and strawberries dipped in chocolate and dots or whatever garbage they're selling at a baseball game. Or the people that brought a bag of peanuts uh, uh, tucked in their pants. Right. They are there to watch a baseball game unfold and to be with their friends. And to me, when I look at a baseball game, I look across that 40,000 people, the guys that are pie-eyed drunk on beer are these little pockets of people that you want to avoid sitting around, that you want to avoid interacting with as much as you can. Yeah. They annoy the shit out of you. They're gross. Their their banter is dumb. Like they're little pockets of disease within the organism of this group of people that are all here. But if you're one of the guys that's always been drunk at a baseball game and you decide, I want to quit drinking, how are you going to go to a baseball game, right? You're going to go there first with your friends and you're sober now or you quit drinking two, 10 days ago. And your friends are like, oh, fuck, dude. Why don't you just have a beer? Right? And it doesn't occur to you to look around you and see all the normals. Mm -hmm. You're just sitting there in your little pocket and you're like, I feel completely outside. And you're outside of your group of five friends, but you feel outside the baseball game. You feel like you can't enjoy the baseball game anymore. And, And you imagine that you're not part of this culture anymore and so forth and so on. And so you start to have to come to, you either start coming to the game with a new group of people 
or you have to stop going to baseball games for a while. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, they're, they imagine that baseball is the thing that they do. That's what their life is all about. And so they have to disconnect alcohol from it somehow. And rock and roll is the same. So many people associate playing music with and associate their creativity with getting fucked up. And to separate not just playing rock and roll and being in a rock and roll scene, but to separate your, your creative juices and your creative mind from this notion that it relies on getting messed up. Uh, that's really hard for people. To do. Yeah. But in fact, there's no connection at all, right? I mean, I do feel like taking drugs opened my head up to notions and, and insights. But that all happened in the first year, really, of taking drugs. The, continuing to take them gave me no new insights into anything except what it was like to be miserable. So I do recommend that people take drugs. I think that everybody should experiment with them. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You can start at 45 years old and take some drugs. You know, now that pot is legal here, I'm meeting all kinds of people that have never smoked pot before. They're 45 years old and they're like, I'm going to take a little pot. It's legal now. What the hell? And they do. And it's great. You know, they're like, this is amazing. But, you know, do it. Do it every once in a while. It's a fun little thing. But, but if you get it, if you know, if you get addicted to something and don't let anybody tell you pot's not addictive. I mean, it's, it, there's a difference between psychological addiction and physical addiction, nah. but it doesn't, I was going to say, but from what I understand, it doesn't matter much, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, that's just more rationalization on the pot of certain, certain kinds of drug users, right? I mean, you don't get addicted to acid unless you decide that what you do is take acid. Mm. I mean, you can get addicted to exercise. You can get addicted to, uh, you can get addicted to sitting and chewing on your thumb. Sure. Right. Like there's nothing about your thumb that intrinsically makes you addicted to it. But you know, if you, if, if your response to anxiety is to sit and chew on your thumb, you're going to have to tape your hand to your waist right. to keep yourself from chewing on right. it. So, you know, my, uh, I've had people argue up and down that pot's not addictive as they smoke it every single day, five times a day. And it's like, well, all right, well, you've got a special, uh, got a special description of what addicted is then. So, yeah, I mean, the path to, not be an alcoholic and not be a drug addict is it's hard. There's no sugarcoating it and you need help, right? There's no sugarcoating that either. You can't just leave all your friends and everything that you've ever known and just go stand walk out into the desert and say, I'm healthy now. Right. Like you need friends, you need new friends and you need people that understand what is that's like and what that's, what's hard about it. But then on the other side of that, there's this whole world of, much more interesting people and much more interesting shit to do where you're surrounded, you know, frankly by people that, that aren't drug addicts and that never were, and that kind of don't understand it. I mean, at least for me, 
that was the transition that I had to make to a world where I was not surrounded by former drug addicts anymore, but was just surrounded by people that were interesting. And that's been incredibly gratifying. Dan, you're not an alcoholic. Merlin's not an alcoholic. Uh, none of the guys in my band are alcoholics. None, you know, none of my friends. Well, that's not true. I still, I still, people come to me to quit drinking and I still have a lot of friends that are, that are still in the life. So you're you know? sort of like in, you're like the godfather for them in a way of like, I can help you. So you're like a helper. Mm, yeah, but they, but you know, they sit there and they don't resent me exactly, but they don't, you know, if you're 45 or 50 and are a practicing alcoholic, people have tried to save you yeah. a lot of times and you don't want to be saved and you don't want to be, uh, you know, you don't want to be anybody's special project. And so uh, one of the reasons I'm able to still be friends with, with addicts and alcoholics is that they're not my special project. You know, I'm not interested in saving them. And if they want to talk about it, if they want to talk about alcoholism, I'll do it with them all day. But if they don't, I don't nag them. There's a couple, there's, there's a couple of friends, one friend in particular that I do nag because he's fucking ridiculous and he knows that I nag him and it's, it's part of our dynamic and it, and it does sometimes get under his skin and, but for the most part, if you're out doing drugs and whatever, I'm just fine. I'm fine with you. I'm fine. I mean, I live in that world. I'm, yeah. I'm in, I'm in bars every night. So I don't judge. And that allows people to do you think, be, though, be friends do, with me. do you think that the f stopping completely for you is the only way to do it? Like yeah. you could, you couldn't have said, well, you know, when I go out and I'll have a, one drink, I won't, you know, or two instead of a six pack. No. Now, what I mean, a six pack, twelve. What would you yeah. have? How much would you drink? As much as there was, and that's the difference. You know, if I could drink two beers, sure, I'd still be drinking two beers. But there was never a time in my life when I was interested in two beers. Interesting. You know, that's like putting one gallon of gas in your car. <laughs> Why the fuck would you do that? <laughs> and so, alcohol is a is some kind of thing that you like. If you're going to sit down at a table with somebody and hang out and talk, why not have a Coke? It tastes better. The reason that you drink alcohol is to, to feel the effects of alcohol. Right. And I'm big enough that two beers doesn't affect me. And if you're going to drink four beers, why not drink 14 beers? So, so no, the, the, there was no sense of social drinking for me and no, and no interest in it as a goal. Like I don't, if I had a beer today, I absolutely could go out right now and have a beer and then, and not have another beer for six months. Mm -hmm. But then I would have a sec, then I'd have a beer a second time, you know, and frankly, I don't know. Maybe I could be a social drinker now and it would be super easy. But why mess around? Right. Why take the chance at all? It doesn't do anything positive. You know, like I don't need it to be friends with people. It doesn't make me any more uninhibited. I'm already pretty uninhibited. Right. 
That's not going to make me more chatty. Already pretty chatty. So what's it going to do? It's expensive. It tastes like rotting grain. And it makes you, makes me, um, just louder, brasher. And the risk is that I go off the rails. So fuck it. You know, but that's speaking as somebody who's 20 years in the, it's 20 years sober. Right. If I was three years sober and still had a lot of connections with people that were actively drinking and I still would get invited to parties and then everybody would go into the back room and I'd be standing out there with the people that weren't the rad people and they were all in a back room giggling and I was standing out, you know, looking at their record collection, right? Um, which I did a thousand times. And eventually, you know, I just let myself out and walked around the rainy streets with my hands jammed in my pockets, imagining that everybody that went into that back room immediately took off all their clothes and started uh, diddling each other. Yeah. So, yeah, you just have to push through that that feeling that you're missing out. Um, because you're not really missing out. No, I'm, no. There, you know, the world of, of doing drugs is not the way, is not the only way to suck the marrow out of life. Right. You know, there, but, I mean, but, but you know, there's, there's the argument that I hear you making it. That's makes perfect sense to me. But I also, you know, I think about these, what sound like these amazing stories that you've talked to me about, about like times when you were, you were drunk or high or both or whatever. And like, it sounds like it was a lot of fun. And then you think about like native Americans going, finding their, you know, spirit animal and do, you know, with peyote or whatever. And like, it seems like there is some kind of role that drugs can play in a person's life, especially a young, a young person's life that, seems to somehow in, enhance those experiences. Would you go back and take that away? Would you, would you remove that from your own uh, life? No, 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 not at all. And I don't think that it is something that's exclusive to young people, right? I mean, I think you can do it at any time. Um, the, the uh, you know, here are the things that I think you should do. I think that you should go out to the coast or up into the mountains. And take mushrooms with your friends. If you do that, you may freak out a little bit. Your friends may look weird to you. Uh, they may look a little otherworldly. <laughs> but probably if you're in, if you're on the coast, or you're in the mountains, you that won't happen. You won't freak out on your friends looking like uh, space lizards because you'll be busy. <laughs> looking at the ocean, turning over rocks and looking at crabs, looking at rocks and trees and being stupefied by how much more you see in them now than you did before. So that is, that is the, the sort of native American practice. I think you see through the curtain, the Carlos Castaneda, you know, you are looking into the sky. In a, in a, in a wholly different way. And frankly, if you look at your friends and they look like 
uh, space lizards, like ask yourself why that you you are seeing something about human beings that you didn't notice before. Um, there is something reptilian about us, <laughs> and and outer space about us. So do that for sure. Um, it's it is possible that you will have some kind of what they call bad trip. You may get into you may get into a a little bit of a of a, a feedback loop where you say the same thing over and over for an hour where you say bricks are red. Oh my God. Bricks are red. Whoa. Bricks are red. You know, you can, that can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not saying that it isn't a little unsettling when your friends turns it turns into when your friends turn into space lizards, but it's going to last four hours. Uh, the intense part. And then the, the come down is generally pretty pleasant. You're just like, whoa, you, you still feel really high and kind of trippy, but it's less intense. And you just sort of, you know, you feel a variety of different kind of emotions as you land. And, and that's, you know, that's the bad version of it. The amazing version of it is that you see, you see through the, you pull the curtain back on, on things mm-hmm. and you recognize that the ocean is both the giver of life and the ultimate grave of everything. And you go, fuck the ocean is the grave and the womb. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> um, that stuff's great and it's, and it's powerful and profound and it's part of human experience and you should do it. And if you haven't smoked pot, you should absolutely smoke pot. And the first time you smoke pot, do not go in the bathroom and look in the mirror. And I say that knowing that everyone will. Why? Why? Because you laugh and laugh and laugh at how ridiculous. That <laughs> like it's the classic cliche of like you look at your hands and you go, oh my God, have you ever really looked at your hands? It's <laughs> dumb, but it's true. Right? You are ridiculous. Your hands are ridiculous. And that's wonderful. And I remember just on smoking, just on pot. And it was, you know, it was maybe after I'd been smoking pot for a year or two. I remember walking down a hill toward a city and really feeling gravity because, you know, it was a steep hill and I was resisting gravity as I walked down the hill and it no longer felt normal. (laughs) I was like, Jesus, I'm being pulled down this hill by a force, (laughs) an irresistible force. And I am resisting this force, but cannot. I mean, I sure I could turn around and go back up this hill against this force it's not so strong that i can't resist it but i want to go down this hill and i'm being pulled down it and then i looked at the city and realized that all of our buildings that we think of as these soaring skyscrapers are really squat and pathetic little hives that all of them are all of them have to be built that way to resist this force this 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 gravitational pull and so when you really look at the sky and how tall it is you know what would be impressive is a skyscraper two miles high but we can't do it and it's because of this like sucking and and just feeling that not looking at it rationally but feeling it primordially and realizing that cities are like dumb little piles Dumb little piles of dirt. 
I carry that with me every day. Yeah. I go into the city and I'm just like, okay, here I come, ants. <laughs> Keep bustling around your little mud, your little termite mound. Um, so all of that, you know, so smoke pot or eat some brownies or whatever and take mushrooms on the beach or in the mountains with your friends. And, you know, you don't need to do cocaine. You don't need to take crystal meth and you don't need to take painkillers. Really. If you've ever taken them, you know what they do. Don't take them very much. Cause that's, that's, uh, a, a, a path, you know? And as far as opium heroin goes, don't, don't mess around with it. It's, you know, yeah, it feels great. I mean, crack feels great, but like what, how great do you need to feel? (laughs) You know, like it, uh, it feels great in a way. Uh, all the all the speedy ones, the crank and the crack and the and the cocaine, they make you feel like you've accomplished something. That's the great feeling. The greatness of that feeling, the feeling that's so powerful, is that it makes you feel like it gives you the same feeling of just having accomplished something. Like I'm amazing. Look what I did. I'm so proud. That's the feeling. Yeah. And so it just go accomplish something. You'll get that feeling and it'll be better. You know, you take one of those drugs and you just feel amazing about yourself, but you didn't do anything. And so that's why it's addictive because people that don't, people that aren't, that don't feel good about themselves get to feel good about themselves. But then you feel so much worse when it wears off. But yeah. So what am I, what was I saying? Pot. Uh, mushrooms and you know mescaline and mescaline is just a version of mushrooms it gives you a different version of it different trip and then LSD is an is an extension of the thing that you experience on mushrooms and it's just I would say it was for advanced users in the sense that I mean I don't know what it would be like to be one of those one of those people in 19 55 that was like sat down in a chair and the CIA gave them LSD and, and watched what happened. Um, cause I think a lot of people had amazing experiences sitting in a, sitting in a CIA room, just looking at their fingertips. Like that's, you know, that's real. And, and LSD boy, you can have really profound insights. So I do recommend it. I think it's real stuff. It's real. It's real. Uh, all the, all the, all the religions of the world are based on people having effectively like psychedelic experiences of one kind or another for whatever reason. Right. And the experience of, uh, the psychedelic experience is very religious and because you have because you know you've taken some drugs you have some context for it and so you don't go write a book about it and start walking around in a white robe telling people unless you're a, a real hippie in which case you know that's what burning man is for right but if you take one of those drugs, you get to see you get to see stuff. You see real stuff, real truths about things. 
that are that are that are religious effectively and do you think it's possible to get to those in any other way sure yeah a lifetime of meditation right if you go to one of those seven day silent retreats and you sit Indian style uh, in a room and don't talk and you eat a doll bot every afternoon and then sit in a little solitary cell after four or five or six days, if you're lucky, you'll have a kind of clear headedness, a clear experience that is the first step on the way to what I imagine um, you know, gurus are able to do maybe without all the colorful visuals and, you know, right. Trippy dippy face melty stuff. But, you know, they get to those same intrinsic truths that, that all is, you know, all is one or whatever. Sure. Uh, psychedelic drugs are a shortcut to a thing. That isn't lasting. You can't stay in that space. But, you know, you take away some things. I brought back a, a small suitcase full of understandings. Maybe maybe primarily that there is that world over there. Right. Like it's possible to get to it somehow. It's possible to get to it. Or even if you don't get to it, it's there. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not there. And it's over there and it's and it is equally true and you know you sit around and and think about multiverses all day as a mathematical concept but you take a, a psychedelic you spend a little time in that place and you go oh multiverse right like it's right it's right here and it's it and i can be exposed to it um so i i do think that you know the the whole interjection of law and morality into this world if it if it weren't there and we just were in a culture where we had discovered these things and then they were available to us and people said you know you shouldn't take these things if you are already feeling mentally vulnerable you should take these things if you're feeling fairly you know fairly strong and comfortable with who you are um and there wasn't this tinge of like that stuff's bad yeah that's all that's all i would suggest to people is just imagine that these were things like coffee which they essentially are and use them sparingly and use them according to their properties I think the world would be, I think the world would be much improved. You know, I think that angry people would probably be less angry if they had a, if they had a, uh, a pleasant trip and, you know, and bad trips are just a thing to surmount, right? You get, you get into those and you just go, Oh, I mean, for me, like at the dawn of a bad trip, you have a choice which is to get yourself somewhere safe. Right. And if you can get somewhere where you're petting a calm dog <laughs> or get somewhere where you are not in a, in a loud party surrounded by people you don't know, but like get, 
you're like, oh shit, I feel like a, I feel like I'm on a, a wrong track here. I'm about to go down a, a hole. I mean, find a dog, find a, find a quiet place and, and reset your, reset your trip. Don't sit around with a bunch of weirdos because you know, a bad trips. No, no, that's no fun. 